Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Disrupted Workforce podcast, a show focused on how disruptions such as coronavirus, the 2020 recession, AI, and emerging technologies are reshaping and reimagining work, skills, and purpose in 2020 and beyond. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. Our mission is to help you navigate these challenging and dynamic times with humanity, actionable insights, and honest conversations with experts in their field. Thanks for listening, and please be sure to rate and review the podcast if you find the content resonates with you. We are grateful for your time, attention, and hope you'll share these important conversations with the people in your life. We're here to help, and we want to make a difference. A quick note is that the interview you are about to hear was recorded back on October 7th, and due to some COVID-related disruptions, and I know you guys know what we're talking about, we are publishing it now in January. In today's exciting episode, we are joined by guest Ben Pring, the head of thought leadership for Cognizant and the co-founder of the Center for the Future of Work in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hat tip to Cambridge, which is seven minutes from where I grew up in Watertown or Watertown in the local accent. Ben is an award-winning author who co-wrote the amazing book, What to Do When Machines Do Everything, which I've read and highly recommend, and is currently writing Monster. Taming the Machines That Rule Our Lives, Jobs, and Future. Formidably, Ben has over 20 years as a thought leader, helping people and organizations see around corners and think the unthinkable, with a primary focus on leading-edge technology and how it intersects with business and society. And Ben's work has been featured in nearly everything smart people read or watch, so we are deeply honored as he has graciously accepted the offer to come and dumb it down with us here at the Disrupted Workforce. Ben, thank you for joining us to share your insights, wisdom, and practical solutions to prepare for the future of work. Oh, well, thank you so much, guys. Great to be with you. Uh, dumbing it down. That sounds terrific. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben. Um, I wanted to take a piece from the website. This idea of the future of work really started to pick up steam. I, or at least I noticed it around 2015, where more and more people were talking about future work is going to be very different. Uh, but despite how much steam it's picking up, I we feel like there's still a lot of people who are not clued into this conversation. A lot of organizations that haven't started the move yet, and here we are another pandemic and recession. So I wanna ground it in what you have on the Cognizant um, Center for the Future Work website, just for people to get the significance of what's happening right now. Um, and it states, the future of work has never been closer. The rise of robots, machine intelligence, distributed ledgers, quantum physics, gig labor, the unexaggerated death of privacy, a world eaten alive by software. All these trends point to a new world that's shaping up quite differently from anything we've ever seen and worked in before. And, and I don't know if you wrote that or you all wrote that before the pandemic, but that sounds like ground zero for right now. Guilty as charged. I think I wrote that in 2011, so it's kind of held up Jeez. quite well, hasn't it? It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, as as we look at that, the center, uh, just for the first kind of kickoff here, is the Center for the Future of Work, is, um, is that a corporate focus, or is the focus broader than that? How far do you cast the net? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Nate. Um, the way I always think about it is that kind of the visual metaphor I have is that technology is like a pebble that you drop in a pond 
and then the ripples from that spread out into further and further and further reaches of everything, you know, into business clearly, then into politics, into economics, into culture, into society, into education, into entertainment, into just living. Uh, you know, I think we're living in this era which has become more and more technological. Technology's never been you know, more central to the way we live now and the way that people are listening to this, the, people are, the way people are working at home on Zoom. I mean, technology has been, you know, in a sort of information technology context around for 70 years now. The first, you know, commercial computer was, um, was uh, released 73 years ago. So we've all kind of grown up in a tech era. But in a way, I think we can all probably acknowledge that in many aspects of our life, tech has sort of been you know, frankly, peripheral to how we've been educated right. or how we go to a doctor or even how we bank until recently. And and now, over the last, certainly last 10, 20 years, and now particularly because of COVID, you know, tech is right in the middle of everything. And so it's hard to talk about anything, politics, education, entertainment, without really having a discussion about tech. And I, I'm sure most people know that famous phrase that, sort of software's eating the world. Um, yep. um, uh, Mark Andreessen said that, a Netscape fan, you know, a long time ago, 10 years ago. And I think it's a brilliant insight that that's completely what's happening. We're really talking, when you're talking about business, when you're talking about the movie industry, which is on, you know, the front pages of uh, lots of newspapers at the moment, are there going to be any such thing as cinemas in the future? That's right. all because of technology. So right. kind of technology is that pebble and then the ripples spread out from that technology. Right. One follow-up question on that is, um, do you believe, and a lot of people are fighting this comment, which is very similar, which is every company is now a tech company. True? Well, I think, I think directionally that's true, but if you zero in to what's happened in big business and where I spend most of my time talking to you know, leaders of large organizations, the reality is, but a lot of businesses, certainly in the last 10 years, the last 20 years, haven't taken technology seriously enough. Right. And the pre-existing condition of a lot of businesses that is being exposed by this illness, this, this virus at the moment, is that they didn't make enough. They hadn't made enough material progress to becoming a tech company. So there'd been a lot of lip yep. service paid to that phrase. Right. But the reality is that a lot of companies have still got a long way to go in actually living up to that kind of aspirational statement. Yep. Touching on that point about the pandemic, I would be curious to know within the center, how has the pandemic and the recession kind of changed or shaped your 2020 goals or success metrics? Yeah, I mean, it's had a, it's had a significant impact um, in some ways, but not in others. I mean, somebody like me and most of the guys who work on in, in our group, you know, I've been working remotely for, gosh, 25 years. Uh, and I've been living away, you know, 70 miles away from an office for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, my life is no different to normal, apart from the absence of travel. I mean, last year, I stayed in 50 different hotels around the world. Yeah. This year, I've stayed, I think, in three. Uh, and there's no kind of um, end to this kind of lockdown at the moment. There's no particular travel I've got in the rest of this year or next year. So that's 
in a way not particularly different, but but different because of the, the absence of travel. The other thing that's been very kind of obviously, you know, very notable for us and for I'm sure a lot of people listening now is that the presentation that I would do in a conference room in Hong Kong or Sydney or in New York, I'm doing like this now right. on, on, a, on a Zoom. And so right. there's a kind of a different uh, approach, a different style, a different skill set to presenting into the, the lens like this, the camera. And I think people like me, you know, not professional TV presenters, <laughs> I think we're all learning this skill. It strikes me, you guys will be too, too young uh, to know, but there was a famous movie long time ago called The Jazz Singer, which was remade in the 70s with Barbara Streisand, which again, you're, you're too young to probably know about. <laughs> but uh, that, was, that movie was set at the period when the movies we talked about a moment ago went from, um, you know, silent movies to talkies. And it was right. talking about the tra that transition and how a lot of the stars of the silent era couldn't make the transition into the talkies because their voice wasn't particularly nice or attractive, they yeah, couldn't yeah. sing. And it strikes me there's a parallel in this moment of transition where the skills to kind of hold a large audience, a thousand people in a room, or even 20 or 30 people in a room, is quite different to the skills that we've got to learn to present like this. So I'm kind of working on that personally. We're, we're thinking a little bit about that. I, I love the comment about the transition from uh silent movies to the talkies i used to work in talent management yeah and it was very interesting just coaching actors who wanted to move from theater to television or to the film business and it's yes it's, it's a totally different thing how you perform and act on stage versus how you perform in front of a tv camera yeah it's a very yeah. very different skill set and a lot of totally. kind of theater actors can't go to movies and likewise, a lot of movie actors can't go to theatre because the, the space, the proscenium arch, where you have to look, how you have to project. I mean, Robert De Niro is the best example of this. When you see him on the screen, he doesn't act at all. He doesn't do anything. He's just literally looking, you know, whoever he's talking to. He, he, there's absolutely nothing that he's doing. If you put him in a theatre, I mean, he would disappear. He would get lost completely. Yeah, and then if yeah. you look at Ian McKellen as an example, who can project and be big on a stage, but then he can rein it right in and be a, a, a movie actor as well. So no, you're absolutely right. Um, so the final thing I was just going to say, guys, I think the big change that we've seen, uh, and I think this is going to be relevant to a lot of uh, folks listening in, is that um, I think what's being kind of demonstrated very, very clearly at the moment is that heads down work, as I call it, can basically be done anywhere. Right. But heads up work, where you need to be collaborative, creative, you need to be kind of getting that energy of, the, of somebody kind of looking at them in the whites of the eyes and really kind of arguing about that. There's still no substitute for that work to be done in the room. So I think that's the transition we're going to have to work through in the next six months, next year or so, is, is figuring out better ways of collaborating on platforms like this and other things like mm-hmm that maybe people have heard about. Mural. Where yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in how yeah. we collaborate. Uh, and Miro, that's right, yeah, in, in a way that is still kind of a little bit rudimentary at the moment. Right. Well, let's stay with that for a second. 
So Chris Anderson recently asked you about the, the pandemic and this altered state that we're in. That's Ted's Chris Anderson. And he, he basically said, like, how long are we going to be in this? And is there any going back or is there only some new normal going forward? Yeah, no, it's the question on everybody's mind. And um, I, I'm a forecaster, but I'm scared of forecasting that because uh, I think that's going to be a tough one to really call. Um, I mean, clearly everything that's sort of scheduled for meetings and events through probably the second quarter of next year is basically being closed down. Um, the World Economic Forum events in January, that's closed. Uh, Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, that's not happening. So uh, I think with the sort of bubbling second wave that's happening in different parts of the world at the moment, it's, uh, we aren't going to get back to any sort of normality anytime soon. The vaccine still seems a way, way out. I think probably what will drive people back into some sort of, you know, form of normality moving around the world is simply COVID fatigue, to be frank with you. Just people getting bored of this and saying, stuff it, I'll, uh, <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. Time, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like a lot of Seriously, people, hands we'll, up. and we'll sort of we'll put our mask on and we'll kind of risk it for a biscuit and uh, we'll just try. And I think um, obviously a lot of kids are already doing that. Um, I, I, I think, however, the notion that as some people are kind of posing this thought that the city is dead or the office is dead, I, I think that's overblown. I think the sort of reports of the death of the office, the city are... Uh, greatly exaggerated. But I do think that um, the permanent kind of enduring uh, um, impact of this is that businesses, particularly, you know, the, again, the big sort of office based businesses that we deal with, banks, insurance companies, right. et cetera, et cetera, they are realizing to that point I made earlier on about kind of heads up and heads down work that a lot of the heads down work that's done in cubicles in these expensive office buildings and expensive parts of town, that, frankly, that doesn't need to be done there. Right. That can be done at home. It can be done in India. It can be done in Indiana. Uh, and I think the permanent impact will be that probably, you know, Acme Inc., some big Fortune 500 organization, will think we can probably get away with, I, my guess is about three quarters of the office footprint that we have Wow. You know, we had in 2019 right. and that 25, 20, 25 percent reduction is probably going to be typically white collar, bourgeois, you know, middle agey type of people who commute in from the suburbs at the moment. Frankly, don't need to do that. You know, go into the office when you need to do that heads up work, that collaboration or you need to meet an important client or important, you know, internal meeting. But the stuff where you're just you know, filling in forms, coding, doing expenses, you know, that sort of work that a lot of people do, you can basically do that anywhere. And right. so that 25% reduction in the office footprint, that's going to be a savings once you can get out of a lease or you can sell that, that um, building on. That's going to go, you know, to the bottom line of a lot of businesses. And I've spoken to a lot of kind of senior people in, again, large insurance companies, banks, who are kind of coming to that appreciation now, that realization now. And that transition is going to be quite, I think, is going to be one of the enduring 
uh, impacts of what we're going through at the moment. Okay. I think that's exactly right. And the opportunity to hire people in different zip codes and pay them lower wages. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, arbitrage is, you know, that's in a way the story of cognizance business. You know, we, we've engaged in that for a long time and it's oftentimes painful if you're on the wrong end of it. It's, it's difficult. But, you know, unfortunately, that's the sort of commercial reality of the world that we live in at the moment. And um, no, I was surprised. I'm sure you guys saw this and other people saw this, that when Facebook in particular made noises about supporting work at home, um, you know, permanently back in the summer, they actually came out and said basically exactly what you said. If you want to move out of Silicon Valley, if you want to go to Sacramento, to Denver, wherever, fine, no worries, but we're going to reduce your salary as a consequence. Really I was not. a bit taken aback by that. It was surprising. I thought it was clumsy optics for them to sort of put those two pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. And um, it does change the dynamic of this kind of work at home model. Again, as I said, I've been doing this for you know, 25 years. I moved out of London, a very expensive town. Now I live on Cape Cod, which is you know, not cheap, but the, the cost differential is pretty significant. And um, so I've arbitraged a city salary into a lower cost you know, place. So I've done my own. Well, it, it is dependent on your lobster consumption then, I, mean. I hate lobster <laughs> i hate china um, then you're saving a fortune <laughs> yeah but no exactly so i've done my own personal form of arbitrage and a lot of people have done that sort of that sort of thing um uh but if facebook if that model re reducing the salary if you go to that lower cost location that's going to change that personal arbitrage equation it won't be quite so attractive and i think a lot of people frankly will probably stick it out in silicon valley because they know that once they get off silicon valley at that price point and they go to that price point it's very hard it's easier to go down than it is to go up right so so speaking more on silicon valley in that insulated little world um <laughs> you've written that AI and machine learning innovation are going to move out of Silicon Valley into a more democratized mainstream, right, as companies are building out their global digital capabilities. And I was, I think you've in some ways answered this already in terms of the speed with which this is happening. But if you can say more, how are you seeing that um, accelerate and what are some of the nuances or the challenges that companies are having to get their arms around AI and machine learning now that the pandemic is here? Yeah, I, I think there's a growing appreciation that, uh, as we were saying earlier on, that tech is kind of central to the next ways of everything. And, and consequently, having tech skills, capabilities, aptitudes, you know, increasingly the source of, you know, your own personal, uh, your own personal journey. So there's a great picture, again, people may have seen this of, um, of the coding class that Mark Zuckerberg took at Harvard the year he was there. And there's like half a dozen people and a dog in this nice lecture hall. And then there's a picture of that lecture hall, I think it was two years ago, and there's people hanging from the rafters, yeah. you know, it's completely oversubscribed. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the kids have got the memo already yeah. and they're gravitating towards, you know, figuring out how to yeah. operate these new, the, the means of production, you know. Yeah. And um, I think it's fascinating to watch that. And again, uh, if you kind of put 
machine learning 101 into YouTube. There's hundreds and hundreds of courses there and millions and millions of downloads. So I think a lot of this is sort of bubbling up organically from younger people, smarter than old people like me, who've kind of figured out where the puck's going. Yeah. They're, they're figuring out how to learn the skills to do that, either if, if they're paying 70 grand a year for it or they're getting it for free from YouTube. And I, and I think what you're going to see in the next three, five, 10, 20, 50 years is just these technologies, these tools that have been developed in a specific, in a number of places in the world, in the Valley and Cambridge and in uh, Tel Aviv, other parts of the world, they're just going to spread out and it's going to be, it'll be a map of the world. It'll be like the coronavirus, this thing just kind of spreading everywhere. And um, I'm a big fan of Steve Case, if, if people know the rise of the rest, the, the revolution movement he's leading, where he's exactly trying to support and invest in VCs and innovators and uh, entrepreneurs in, you know, small town America, middle America, flyover zone. Th same things happening in, you know, other parts of the world, in, in the UK and in Germany and France and uh, in, in China, of course. And yeah, so the technology was developed by, you know, kind of brotherhood of nerdy people in, you know, in the valley and, and other small you know, parts of the world. But this is the story of, of the rest of our, certainly our working lives. This technology's spreading out and, and people figuring out, just as people figured out, you know, 150 years ago, if I want to make some money, I've got to figure out how this loom works. Right. Mm -hmm. Now people mm -hmm. are figuring out, well, I've got to figure out Java or um, Ruby on Rails. And that's kind of what's going on, I think. Right. Yeah. So, so speaking of companies kind of figuring that out, um, as I shared, you know, when we caught up a little bit uh, before the show, I just moved to, to Miami after 19 years as a New Yorker. And I think we can all agree, you know, in terms of experiences, uh, moving kind of sucks, right? Moving sucks. <laughs> and one of the things that sucks about it is that you have to move all your services from one location to the next. So, and also find all these new services. And even with my seat with with Nate as a as a member of the disrupted workforce and all the research that we do uh, and the awareness that automation and chatbots are becoming so pervasive nowadays I was I was blown away um, by how hard every company that I interacted with tried to keep me away from a human being yeah. and in the <laughs> chatbot funnel and um, and and the experience was not very good Ben because you know, they'll pick up, uh, if I'm in an Uber, they'll pick up on the wind, they'll pick up on, you know, background noise from a, a show that my, that my four-year-old is watching. And my basic takeaway was that the chatbot experiences are not great yet. And traditional customer experience is becoming practically extinct as a result of sort of the human downgrading that we're all experiencing, right? That a lot of these customer service reps and people that really teach that as a trade skill it feels to me that that's uh, that level of really fantastic customer experience from a sales rep has gone away. So we're in this in-between stage is how it felt to me through this process. And I was curious to know, what do you see in terms of companies or initiatives that are really doing a great job of bringing humans and chatbots together for a more seamless experience? Who's, who's doing that handshake in a, yeah. in a, in a better way? It's a super interesting question, um, 
Alex, and I like the way you framed it. And I think this actually is going to be one of the kind of the battlegrounds, if you like, of the next five or ten years. Uh, and you know, it's too crude to, to put it, you know, man versus machine. But I think there are two very clear paths emerging, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, how those paths develop, whether they kind of are in a double helix or whether they kind of go in, in different ways. And I'll frame it like this. I think the great, um, the great, one of the great elements of the Apple story that everybody kind of knows and loves is that if you go into the Apple store, you're surrounded by Apple employees. Yeah. And you go in there and they're super nice, super helpful, super interested. It's kind of a cool experience. It's an aspirational experience. You know, pre-COVID, you could just go in and hang out and kind of there'd be some training thing. They'd be teaching how to, you know, use garage band or something like that. Um, that to me, that model stands in stark contrast, and I won't mention any names because I'll be sued up the wazoo, uh, but the, the experience you have if you go into a big box store a big box pharmaceutical, you know, outlet, you know what I'm talking about, where you wander in and you can't find anybody. You yeah, can't you see any person. Yep. You literally can't see. Can you tell me where something is? Can you tell me where I'd find this brand? There's nobody there to ask. And most normal sane people are not going to queue up at the till, you know, the checkout yeah. and ask the question after you've queued, you know, lined up for five minutes just to ask a question. So people leave. And so the, those two different experiences, to me, are a consequence of Apple automating the transactional element of, of buying something and allowing the human experience to be freed from the transaction. Whereas the big box store haven't automated the transactional elements, and that's all the people do. Mm -hmm. Right. So the people are bogged down in doing the transaction, which the machine, the software could do. Yeah. And in effect, without being, you know, impolite and rude and, you know, a jerk about it, those people are essentially being bad robots, bad software. <laughs> Whereas I, 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 I don't I don't mean to laugh because it's not it's not funny, but it's it's it's. Um... It is the reality in the moment that we're in, and uh, I, I think you illustrate that point incredibly well. My, yeah, my, I I have my wife and I agree. <laughs> we we said that co uh, customer service in coronavirus has been the worst we've experienced in a long yeah. time, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think I think again, as a, as a Brit who's lived in America for twenty years, America twenty five years ago had the reputation internationally as being the home of customer service. Oh. You know, some people kind of ridicule their have a nice day culture and all that kind of stuff. But the level of service one would get in a store, in a, in a diner, was much higher than certainly in the UK, where I came from, other parts of the world, France, where, you know, famously people are rude. Um, I think I've seen and I've noticed, again, with my kind of foreign eyes, that degrade in America very, very noticeably in the yeah. you know, 20 years plus that I've been here. But bringing it back to this point about this relationship between man and machine, I think it, I think the Apple experience 
and you know experiences you can have in other similar places is because they've taken away the tedious elements that people do they've allowed the technology to enhance what the people do and ultimately what we want as customers is we want our problem to be solved quickly efficiently pleasantly and we want to have a good time we want to have a good experience and you have a good experience when you go into an apple store so if you buy that logic Yep. It, to me, it suggests, ergo, that there's got to be more attention in that pharmaceutical retailer on automating away the transactional elements of it to allow their people to be, as I put it, better human beings. And they've got to spend more time refocused on helping their staff you know, be better human beings, looking up, smiling, interacting, yeah. talking, asking you know, how, how are you doing? Rather than being unable to do that because they're focused on filling out the, you know, on the POS or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I talked to um, the CEO of Starbucks the other day about this, and that was exactly his point as well. Obviously, it's compromised a little bit through in through the drive-through because you can't spend too yeah. long chatting to because the person behind the the SUV behind is going to go, who, who, you know, move along. But in the store. Pre-COVID, that was very much what they were aiming towards, is, is to automating away the transactional elements and enhancing the, ex, 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 uh, the experience that you have in that store. And I think more and more organizations should think, should, should think about that. Now, the twist in the story, and this is a very new twist in the story, and it's making me rethink through some of this, is that when you see, and some people may be familiar with, the, with a couple of... Um, things that have caught my eye recently. One's called Unique, and one is called Synthasia. Hmm. And they are basically what's being called digital humans. And it's where there's the sort of technology you would have seen in, in the movies, in Avatar, CGI type of uh, software, um, creating a digital human, a digitally human interface, a, right. a face that on a screen that you could talk to, and when you plug that together with GPT-3 that people may have been hearing about, the leading edge of machine learning software that can write a script, write words, completely indistinguishable from how a human would be, way beyond the, you know, the fabled Turing test. When you plug that software writing capability with the visual um, interface of a digital human and then you plug into that software from a company like ASAP, which is agent um, call center agent coaching. Yep. At the moment, it's like a sports commentator. There's a you know um, an earplug, uh, or it's on the screen. The customers ask for X. Why don't you recommend Y? Real time. Yep. Real so they're time. using ASAP to train the AI. That yes. Is then so at the moment, ASAP's being used to train and coach. The person but when you can plug the digital human in there and the scripting can all be done real time by gpt3 asap is the coaching interface then i begin to get nervous again right. that that's going to be very attractive that's going to be more attractive for big businesses to put that in place rather than try and coach up and make their real humans better in the way well, that's talking and about. And that, that AI learns its scale. Humans and can't that learns its scale, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like the Tesla fleet. Yeah. One, one accident one car has, 
the reasons for that, the diagnostics is shared with the whole yeah, fleet. Everybody knows. And so, so this is the evolution that I'm, again, anxious about, because in our book that you mentioned, What to Do When Machines Do Everything, you know, we wrote that basically five years ago, and we went through these kind of mental uh, arguments then, and we sort of tamped down the fear of this automation wave taking away jobs in the way that, you know, some people were suggesting. Fast forward to today, I think that concern is coming back again. Yeah. And COVID is probably realistically just going to make that more intense, this discussion that big businesses are have, having, because, you know, if we can get, you know, if we can take people out with all of the, the health-related issues, I mean, the logic to do that is going to be, frankly, quite strong. It's going to be very compelling within the C-suite. I think you know all three of us have spent a good amount of time with C-suite executives of publicly traded companies, and there's a lot of short-term, how do we please Wall Street, how do we goose our profits thinking. Yeah. And with COVID as an excuse, I mean, in some ways, they've kind of been handed, you know, this... Uh, this it's it's sort of the perfect way to get these clandestine AI missions approved. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll never forget uh, a few summers ago, I was with uh, the chief operating officer of a major uh, hotel chain. Um, and he said, you know, I could today replace 40% of the workforce that w works directly under me with software. But politically and culturally, I could never pull it off. Mm. And I'd be very curious to say what he would, to hear what he would say right now. No, I, I think, think the answer right. would be I think, different. I think, I think um, I've had a similar thought and based on similar observation that um, a lot of the capability that data provides to do what I call mass personalization, customization of a solution and offering at scale based on a data profile that you know you give up through every sort of digital interaction we call that yeah. a code halo yeah. um insurance companies you know we've talked to a lot of insurance companies about this over the years and they were on the one hand fascinated by the potential of doing that to your point uh alex they were nervous that the first mover advantage of doing it would actually blow back on them and there would be a first mover disadvantage. So they haven't really done that Optics. big way. Yeah. And I think to your point, now COVID is giving people a rationale to relook at that, that equation, that trade-off. And perhaps the notion of actually acting on that now, you know, to save the business is, is as you say, very, very compelling. Right. They have an excuse. They have an excuse, yeah, a rationale to do it, yeah. Um, I want to talk about GPT-3, but before I do, you just um, popped something in my brain that I have to ask you about. Is this healthy tension? Um, and I want to know how it feels for you. So you talk to the world about where things are going, what the future work's going to look like. Get ready. This thing is changing. But while you're walking those miles and telling those stories, you see things that really worry you. And are, do you have the freedom and do you feel the obligation, the responsibility to, to start to change the story and say, hey, there's a lot of this that's good, but over here, there's some things that are not good and I'm raising my hand now. 
Yeah, no, no it's, it's a great the way you frame that. It's almost like you're inside my head because that's, that's, yes. <laughs> that's the discussion I'm having, you know, uh, unfortunately, 25 hours a day. Um, no, that's exactly right. We, I mean, I think in, in the, the, the seat that I have, that's exactly the tension that I'm on top of. I, I mean, I, you know, I've worked in technology, the technology industry, since I graduated, um, you know, a long time ago now. And so I love technology. I, you know, I, I was the sort of Star Trek nerdy guy. <laughs> and, um, you know, I love the possibility of technology. And I sometimes, I wrote a piece a few years ago. I mean, my dad died in 1993. He was an older dad, he did not, not premature, he was almost 80 then, he was an older dad, but he died in 1993. And a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece about everything that had happened since he died. Wow. You know, all of, this, all of the technology, he used to, you know, he used to get lost anywhere he drove. And, uh, you know, so GPS <laughs> would have been a, you know, lifesaver for him. Uh, think about everything that's been invented in a relatively short period of time, if he came back now, it would be like living in a science fiction movie. Right. And I get staggering for him. Yeah. 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 It'd be just extraordinary. It would blow his mind. Yeah. yeah? It it would blow his mind that we're talking like this. It would blow his mind that, you know, I can talk to this thing and it will talk back to me. So many things that would just blow his mind. And we, we, you know, we take it all for granted. We're the proverbial frogs in the the boiling pan. We don't really know Yes. Yeah. So assimilated to it the whole time, but it's extraordinary. I love all that, and I love the thought that this this sort of exponential curve we're on that's just accelerating. The next twenty five years is going to be even more extraordinary. Would, would you like Would you say it's nonlinear at this point? We're past. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. just nonlinear. It's just and it's all becoming combinatorial. It's all yeah. you know GPT on top of ASAP. Yeah. Uh, AI on top of quantum, yeah. uh, AI on top of uh, CRISPR. These things are like, you know, nuclear weapons all going off at the same time. And and so I'm super excited about that. The commercial opportunities around all of that for companies like the one I work for, for companies most people, you know, be listening to this now work for, the personal opportunities that's going to create are huge and you can't i mean you can't but be excited by that you couldn't do my kind of job you couldn't do your sort of job if you weren't super excited by that right however <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> the reality is that we can see if unless you're the most myopic pollyannish person with the most sort of insane commercial vested interest unless you're leveraged up the you know yeah <laughs> the wazoo and you've got yeah. a big uh, mortgage to pay every month um unless you're that type of person we can all see that this is kind of going a bit squirrely we can all see increasingly the downside of data we can all increasingly see the downside the potential downsides in this discussion about automation and, and its impact on a on, on jobs so i feel with the sort of position I've got, the the visibility I've got, to not acknowledge that, to deny that, would just be wrong. It, it just it just wouldn't be honest. And 
you know, my my thing for better or worse has always been to, you know, sort of call it how it is and, and, and to be comfortable in talking about uh, things that other people aren't comfortable talking about, you know, sort of, you mentioned it in that little in intro of me and my bio, you know, sort of thinking the unthinkable. Right. I think you need to be able to think the unthinkable to think about what's coming next, because there's always so much vested interest in not uh, acknowledging, you know, what's coming next. And, and, and so all things notwithstanding, that tension be, be, between being very positive about technology, acknowledging the downsides of technology, that leads me to a point where, uh, and it's a long, long way of uh, getting to the advertorial part of this session, where we've got this new book coming next year called Monster, yep. taming, taming the machines that rule our lives, jobs and future. And it starts off with this premise that we love technology. We can see it's kind of going off the rails a little bit. It's up to us to get it back onto the rails. Right. And if we don't, then people who don't love technology as much as we do are going to come along, you know, politicians, regulators, et cetera, et cetera, are going to come along and frankly, they're going to muck it up. Bad actors going to be bad for all of us and, yeah. and the worst case scenario i have in my mind and again people may be familiar with this um mark benioff from salesforce who said probably about 18 months ago now that social media is like cigarettes and that caused a bit of a kind of ruckus it's it's now becoming more and more obvious that that's true and my greatest fear is that maybe, maybe people um have seen movies like Thank You for Not Smoking, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. the cigarette executives are basically on trial. You know, the, the, the oil executives are sort of persona yep. non grata now, aren't they? I think in another generation, there's a real fear that the tech executives are personas non grata, and I don't want to be in that camp. Right. I don't want to be sort of rounded up with people who did damage to society. So that, that's really where I am today, late 2020, going into 2021, why I think it behooves, you know, responsible people who love the technology and can see absolutely the, the upside potential to make sure that that version of things unfold rather than a much more negative and much darker version, which I don't think will, you know, be useful for any of us, frankly. Right. I, I love that you said that so much, Ben, and I love that you really put the onus on, on all of us. And I, I think Nate and I certainly feel the, the weight of that on our shoulders. And as people that have worked with, with youth and are really thinking about this generation that's coming up and, you know, what these devices are doing to them. And the, the tobacco uh, metaphor, I think, is pretty apt. And what you're seeing is that people really are fighting on both fronts. You see... Uh, guys like Tristan Harris and yeah. the Center for Humane Tech, and I've, I've met with those folks, and I know those guys, uh, and you know, movies like The Great Hack, which are very publicly, uh, so Social Dilemma and The Great Hack are, are two fantastic movies on Netflix, yeah. so to our, yeah. our listeners, by all means, check those out. Yeah. And those movies, in, in many ways, are sort of going after what you would call big tobacco and, and saying mm. you have to change, you have to make your cigarettes less addictive. Mm. Ethical coding. Yeah. Mm. And then you've got the, a number of other folks who are who are really trying to change the discourse and they're going to the the populace at large and saying here's how you quit smoking 
right? And I think that's, I think both of those conversations have to happen, which is, you know, one, going after the technology companies to, to get them to self-regulate in a much better way, and also to recognize that these devices are very sticky, that they do hijack our brains, and that no matter how much these things are changed, you know, there is, it is incumbent upon us to, to teach the youth and to teach people uh, within organizations um, that, that, are, that are, you know, handing out devices to their employees how to use these devices more responsibly. Yeah, uh, and again, I feel this is very personal for me. I mean, um, Alex, you mentioned, you know, you have a four-year-old. I've got two kids. One's 20, one's 18. I, they have been the guinea pig in this experience, in this in this in this last you know 15 years or so and as a tech guy i was super excited to give them a cell phone when yeah. they were 11 12 and the first couple of you know messages they sent me are oh, so sweet how cool and now i'm horrified horrified i'm absolutely horrified because those one or two little tweets and messages have now turned into 25,000 snaps a day mm -hmm. You know, and, and so I feel personally responsible for that to a degree. I feel personally guilty about that. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, again, that's why it's, it is personal, because I think, you know, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they're doing. Right. I mean, that's what I feel about myself. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know it was going to be uh, the, full, the full scope of this. I, you may see on the, in the background there, Shizana Zuboff's book, Surveillance capitalism. Great, another another recommendation for people if they've not come across it. Uh, she's a, um, a former professor at Harvard Business School. I think it's one of the most important books that I've read in, in in recent times because it really drills into the detail of how this happened. And I thought I was pretty kind of you know au fait with things, but I learned a lot reading this. And and particularly what I learned, which was shocking. And I don't think even in The Social Dilemma, the Tristan Harris movie, which I watched as well and sort of, you know, liked, I had some reservations about it, but it was certainly powerful. And it certainly got a lot of attention, which is great. Um, I don't think even he was fully conscious of, or maybe he was, but maybe it hasn't come out fully yet. It's just how far back this engineering, this hacking goes and how deliberate and how considered it was from a very very early stage right mm. um you know literally 2001 2002 2003 you know there were very very senior people in some of these organizations who were thinking through this how do we addict people right in a very proactive deliberative way and that's shocking when you read about it in that detail it really is shocking and, you know, a lot of these people, again, I'm not going to mention any names, but a lot of these people are lionized and the great heroes of our time. And it's just, it's unconscionable, really, I, I feel. The, 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 the most powerful analogy that Zuboff lays out, which has totally changed how I think about it, is that she, she talks about the fact that what's happened in the last 15 years or so is akin to what happened when the the first European um, uh, conquistadores, if you like, went to the new world. Mm. And the, the indigenous people in you know, Brazil, Chile, other parts of the world, literally had no conception that where they lived, the land that they lived on, had any monetary value. Right. 
And the conquistadores, who had a completely different concept, they basically bought up all of that land and you know, became fabulously wealthy as a, as a consequence. And before the, the local indigenous people realized what was going on, the game was over right. and they were completely excluded from that game. Her analogy is that that's what's happened in the last 15 years with data. Ordinary people, even smart, intelligent tech people like us, we, we didn't really understand that data had a value. We still don't fully understand that today, but these companies conceptualize data, the value of data much earlier, much quicker, and now the game is over. As the most valuable resource in the world. As the most valuable resource in the world. Yeah. And, and, you know, that sounds strong, and some people may kind of bulk at that. It sounds, you know, sounds very hard critique, but I think it's hard to deny the truth of that, the reality of that. Right. Um, and that's, again, what I find troubling, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a cheerleader for tech. I'm an evangelist. I love technology. But what's gone on and what is going on you know, makes it harder to love technology at the moment, which, I, which I'm sad Well, about. and that's one of the things we love about you is the, this idea of truth, which we're not going to digress into on this particular chat, but this idea of truth is becoming harder and harder to find. And so when you have someone like you who says, I'm going to hold both sides of this conversation and I'm going to do my best to illuminate and have this conversation with all of you, we, you know, we find that to be remarkable. So thank you for doing that um before we leave the gpt3 um conversation you wrote a piece in august my name is ben pring and i wrote this message and you said at the end of it my role is in the crosshairs too yeah this is gonna automate me out of a job potentially and i think that's another piece of that truth is you're not afraid to say i'm not exempt can you just tell us more about that yeah no again when we wrote that book, Machines, what, what to do when machines do everything, there were a couple of companies around at that time, one of them called Narrative Science. Uh, Automated Insights was another one that, again, some, some of your listeners, watchers may be familiar with. And it was, it was very sophisticated writing software that was writing up like a sports result from a, a AAA baseball game. You, you could feed into this software the number of strikes, all, all the statistics, and then the software would actually turn out a story, the narrative, a narrative that it yeah. seemed like from a from a sports writer. And place, you know, local newspapers were using it, and ESPN were using it. And it was, yeah, we were blown away. It was kind of really interesting. They were doing it in the stock stock market as well. You know, stock scores and 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 um, um, you know the the stock market of a of a particular day. Um, so that was interesting. We sort of, again, we worked through this equation. How many people is that going to put out of a job? Yeah, probably not that many, re realistically. And also, as a tool, it's going to allow a lot of people to do their month-end reporting a little quicker, a little easier. So, yeah. you know, there's an upside in that tool. Fast forward to GPT-3, and again, if people haven't looked at it and haven't looked at the examples of it, I mean, talk about an exponential curve in the underlying development of the technology. I mean, it's like 2015 was, um, you know, a concrete wheel. And now 2020 is like a Pirelli <laughs> X25 or whatever. I, I don't know very much about wheels and tires, but you get my drift. 
And it's amazing. And so here I am, somebody who's, you know, I probably my job is, I don't know, 50% writing, 50% talking, presenting. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact people like me. Um, it's going to impact people who make a, their, write, you know, their living writing. I, I just I can't see any other way around that. The same um, pairing, though, that you talked about is um, with uh, Alex's example of the chatbot. In some way, that pairing is going to be happening with you where yeah. you start to leverage this piece of software. And for a while, it's super helpful. And then at yeah. some point, maybe yeah. it just takes it over a yeah. piece no, of it. I think that's right. I think, again, this is a model that I, I, I'll sketch out. I haven't fully developed it, so <laughs> getting, a, getting a kind of a demo version of it, um, which is if you think about the way technology often works out, the way it integrates itself into a, a human process, a human experience, it, it's sort of like how you put it, Nate, that it initially learns from the person and then supports the person, and then ultimately has the potential to replace that person. Right. Um, I think about this in terms of what Uber are doing. You know, Uber initially is software that takes a component of that taxi-going experience process and automates it and sort of helps both sides of the equation, the, the supply and the demand side. And ultimately, uh, initially, the, the driver, that's great. But then when Uber can take some of the money from that direct into uh, developing self-driving cars, right. then that's going to be a completely different equation. I remember, I remember um, speaking to um, somebody a few years ago who um, was looking to leave a big tech company uh, again, I, I can't really <laughs> talk about any names, but um, that have a well-known piece of AI software. You often see their adverts on TV and uh, um, at sports sports events. Uh, and he said that they, this company had tried, he was a senior banker, I think, financial guy. They had tried to hire him and he had figured out really what they were hiring him for was for him to teach the software the rules of banking. Yep. And he said, I don't want to teach this thing that I can just sense is going to put me out of the job. Yeah. I mean, that was a few years ago, and I thought that was kind of... But he was... I think he was smart. I think he was onto something. <laughs> let, let me ask you this. We are, we are going to get into some practical solutions. We're going to ask you about some practical mm. solutions or tips about what our listeners can do to really prepare for, for the future of work in a tangible way. But I, I want to bubble the conversation up to the 50,000 foot level and ask you, Ben, just succinctly, what does it mean to be human now? Wow. That's not dumbing it down at all. <laughs> existential kind of yeah um, I, I, i'd just love to get your thoughts I, I think well let me think about that for a second i this is a little phrase i sometimes use i i spend a lot of my professional time in the future i spend a lot of my personal time in the past i like hmm. history i read a lot of history 
And I think I do that to avoid the present. <laughs> Revealing, thank you. And, um, and I, one of the reasons I like history so much is because, you know, anybody who reads history is only familiar, you know, with any particular period. And certainly if you read a lot of history over a, lot, a long period of human history, human sort of existence, the patterns repeat a lot. Um, for sure. Yes, maybe maybe that's a completely, you know, a, a, an email from the department of the bleeding obvious, but <laughs> it, 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 it's the patterns completely. I, I've just been reading um, a book that um, is, is a few years old, twenty years or so old now, called "The History of Britain" by a um, English guy who's a professor. Has been a professor at Columbia here in the states called Simon Sharma. He's quite quite well known. He's done TV shows. When you read this history of Britain from, you know, the Vikings right up through to post-Second World War, what's completely obvious to me is that everything that we're struggling with at the moment, all of the political, you know, Gotterdammerung, <laughs> all of the angst that we're living yeah. through at the moment, I mean, this is not new at all. No. This is totally not new. This is so... It's so cyclical. Yeah, it's so cyclical. It's just ridiculously cyclical. And and um, obviously the, the the means of communication and how we're expressing ourselves and how we're talking and perhaps the most the biggest difference I think is the velocity, the speed at which we're communicating is different and new. But the underlying patterns completely cyclical, completely um, re repeat. And I think to, so. To your question. Alex, which is a great question. I think the enduring aspects of our humanity, what makes us fundamental at the end of the day, human, whilst the margins of that may change, the clothing, the, the language, yep. the slang, the, the, you know, the, the things that we like, while they all may change, there are very deep foundational, fundamental aspects of what it is to be a human, which I think will always ultimately be enduring and unchanged. And I, again, this is another email from the Department of the Bleeding Obvious. They're, they're just the simple things that we all understand. They're, you know, the ability and the, the desire to be loved, the desire to be liked, the desire to be wanted, the desire to be valuable, yep. In the, connection. Desire, the desire to laugh, yep. the desire to get drunk, yep. <laughs> you know, the desire to um, see the ocean, the desire to climb a hill, the desire to, mm -hmm. you know, run fast. Those sorts, I don't know, they're just foundational things about us as humans that, you know, we may do some of them differently through this, but somebody from 2,000, 3,000 years ago would come back and they'd be amazed by that GPS, but they'd still kind of recognize who we are and what we're trying to do. And I think relating that back to that thought about science fiction, I think the reason why Star Trek for the, for the Trekkies on, on, on this session now, the reason I always loved Star Trek so much the, the old, the, the original version, was, you know, they free, Gene Roddenberry freely confessed 
this was basically the Napoleonic Wars in space. Mm-hmm. You know, it was something that had happened 200 years ago, but set two or 300 years in the future. The notion of a ship, the notion of a captain, the notion of ranks and seniority and people being on a long journey, a long voyage. It was no different from Horatio Hornblower, those stories. It was just set in the future. And I think, again, that speaks to the fact that over that 500, 600-year window that he was looking at, Captain Kirk is completely recognisable. Her is completely recognisable. Bones is... Scotty, they're all completely recognisable people, even when you have an alien, you know, Spock, he's still mm-hmm. kind of recognisable and his motivation. And I think that's that will be true even when we've got, you know, Elon Musk's neural mesh and our <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're uploading yeah. our consciousness into the cloud and all this kind of stuff. I, I think, unless I'm very, very wrong, and we're at such an inflection point where uh humanity you know in a way maybe Kurzweil will talk about the singularity changes beyond any recognition I don't I don't buy that argument to be honest with you I I think that's overblown but I think the humanity is and particularly in an age of automation and going back to that notion about transactional elements being automated away the experience ultimately when you go to a doctor or your kids in front of a teacher you want that to be a good human experience. If right. the technology can make it a better human experience, great. But I don't want my kids to go to a robot teacher or I don't want to go to a robot doctor. I want to go to a good human being and have a good human experience because I think that's what we've always, always wanted. And I think, you know, my bet is that that continues to be what people want for a long time to come. Right. I think that's a really thoughtful and beautiful answer ben thank you really really thoughtful really beautiful and and uh definitely touched my heart with all the examples of the ways in which we we engage as humans and what we long for thank you i i would i I guess where i struggle and i don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole but where i struggle is what does human what is that sense of human if purpose is taken away because what we are able to do for income and for work becomes more and more uh, marginalized as technology proliferates. That's really sort of my concern. But I think all these other areas that you're talking about are um, are exactly right. And I think there's sort of a movement that's happening in this moment that that feels like a back to human movement. As a as a it, it, yeah, it's on the fringe. I yeah. think in a lot of ways. Yeah, but no, it's, I think that's right. Yeah, no, I I wrote a piece a while ago, um, AI, the straw, inequality, the camel. Um, You know, this notion... You're going to have to say more. I'm a little lost. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's a teaser. (laughs) Um, In our next episode. (laughs) (laughs) This notion that all of these discussions about... Uh, income distribution, inequality, um, capital from Thomas Piketty, the book some people will know, this discussion about the transition from uh, shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, the search for, for purpose and meaning. All of these things have been bubbling up for a long period of time. 
um, you know, in the, in the fashionable sort of talking shops in high up on mountains and on beaches and stuff. Right. And, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and AI, it struck me, if it's, if ultimately its impact is to exacerbate the income inequality that we can all see, it makes the winners win even more and everybody else is left behind then that may be the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, it may, it may ultimately not be the, the real reason the camel's back breaks, but it may just be that final uh, thing that tips it over the edge. And, and I think that's, again, why people on the leading edge of technology, um, you know, who are not villains, who are not kind of, you know, you know, sort of movie villains, they're just regular people, very smart people, cool people trying to do things nobody's ever done before, if they allow that innovation to be completely the handmaiden of the big moneyed interest classes, and this just makes, you know, the 1% even better off and everybody else, you know, go take a walk. That, that's, again, troubling. And again, you put that into the historical context, of of Les Miserables and 1848 and labor movements all around the world. These are the patterns that we've been fighting for a long period of time. And again, I, I, I'm more in that Steve Case camp where I want these powerful tools to be in the hand of more and more people mm -hmm. rather than just in the hands of fewer and fewer people okay. who are basically taking all the money off the table and just leaving scraps for everybody else democratized yeah um you have used a metaphor often and i think it's a valuable metaphor to share more about how you see that manifesting but the metaphor is it's like a forest fire right it yes it burns a lot of acres we're seeing them all over the country right now burning you know more acres than ever before but in this metaphor you remind us that it paves the way for growth so yeah it's devastating but just hang on everyone there's some good stuff coming can you tell us yeah. more about that? Well, no, again, it's, it's I, think, I think that metaphor, the 400-year-old fire, forest fire, whatever, it's, it's, people sort of know that phrase and that idea. And I, I'm just trying to call out some hope, really, because it obviously does feel pretty dark at the moment, pretty hopeless for a lot of people at the moment. If you're kind of working in a big, a big organization and you've just been riffed, I mean, it's, these are very, you know, hard times, very real hard times. Um, and I feel for, you know, anybody who's in that situation, uh, for the grace of God, go, you know, all of us. And, but, the, but the truth is that, again, in a historical context, these cycles repeat. You know, this is, this is not unprecedented. And, and we know that when the forest fire clears out the forest a little bit, the sunlight can go lower down to ground level, the breezes can come through, there's more oxygen, more room, nutrients for those little green shoots to grow. And the, the green shoots in this metaphor are the future of work, really. Right. I mean, again, we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier. That I think we're going to see, because of COVID and because of having to be at home and work in this virtualized way, I think we're going to see a, a sort of Cambrian explosion of innovation in the platforms, the tools, the technologies, the systems we use to communicate and do our work. I mean, I, in fact, I just noticed half an hour before we got on this call that Phil Libin's mm -hmm, 
I can never pronounce it yet. People may have not seen it, but it's a cool presentation meeting tool. It's just got a big round of funding. He, he's the ex-CEO of Evernote. Okay. You may know him. We'll check it out. Yeah, no, it's very cool. Um, I think it's spelled M-M-H-M-M. Mm -hmm. Haven't got used to saying it yet. But anyway, the point is, he's getting funding to do this kind of innovation, things like StreamYard, another cool platform. I think we're going to see in another year's time, a load more tools, load more green shoots to support how we're working today. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're going to uh, see that opportunity, you, you could potentially do very, very well. Right. So again, it's the yin and yang, isn't it? Old right. things die, old things kind of go away, new things. And the pattern. Uh, that's circle of life. Yeah, yeah. we got to, you, you can't deny that or you can't stop that happening. Just that, that is a natural part of the cycle in a way. Right. Ben, you realize that our listeners in the Midwest are going to say, hey, we were listening to Ben Pring on the Disrupted Workforce, and he, he was talking about some program called Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That could be the platform for the future of work in Kansas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know about using no mm-hmm, but I'll use that uh-huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> so the, I wanted to go into jobs because, you know, that is just for a minute, it is a big part of it. And I want to ask more of a kind of a personal question that I've been wrestling with is when you look at the future of jobs, World Economic Forum continues to put out what the jobs of the future look like, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a call out, a heavy tech call out, software development, data science, advanced analytics, artificial intelligence, internet of things, you know, um, automation certainly. And when I kind of look at the landscape of my world and I think about my immediate and extended family and I sort of ask myself the question, how many people in my world are going to jump into those kind of jobs? And it's a small number. <laughs> and so then I start kind of turning my head and going, what's everybody else going to do when a small number of people do those? And increasingly, code can write its own code. Code can automate itself. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to do the math. So instead of talking about all these future tech technologies for a minute, can we talk about what are, what are, what's the average Joe going to do? Great question. Great question. Yeah. No, I, I've, I've um, gone through a similar kind of thought process and a little kind of framework that I've developed is that it strikes me, yeah, and it's based on my own experience and then watching my kids, um, there's a bit of a, there's, there's almost like a threshold, there's almost like a gate at when somebody is about 12, 13, 14, it's really about 14, when it becomes pretty obvious whether that person is any good at math or not. And this gate is there in their kind of schooling. And if you're good at math, you go through that gate and you're in a kind of, I would call it a math-centric world. Right. And, and maths is the foundation of finance, coding, architecture, medicine, engineering, biotech. If you, if, you're, if you go through that door, that gate, into that math-centric world, I think there's not been, there hasn't been a better time in human history to be alive. Because all of those jobs you talked about, 
um, nay, all of those jobs basically have a foundational math underpinning that you as a person have got to be pretty comfortable with. Right. Now, I would say that the people who can go through that gate is probably no more than 20% of the entire population. I couldn't go through that gate. Mm. <laughs> I'm not a math-centric person, really. And so the real question, and just you know, reframe your question, is what do all the liberal arts students <laughs> in the future? Well and, said. And more, Very well said. Yeah. Perhaps even more pertinently, what do all the people who can't even get a liberal arts degree yeah. do? Well, then I'm, I'm an English major, and the answer is uh, start a podcast, just <laughs> yeah, exactly, so you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm a philosophy major. And, uh, um, no, so, so to me, that's the real question. It's what, does, what do all the non-techie people do, the non-math people? And I think this comes back to really the discussion we had earlier on, is that you've got to double down on being a good human being. Mm. You've got to double down on the things... That we're not going to automate away that right. the, 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 you know being a good human being being a nice person being a funny person being somebody likable some that people want to be around and and, and i would ally, ally that thought and this is my own observation from my own career and i think probably resonates for you guys is that in tech companies there are lots of non-tech jobs yep i mean i i've never written a, a, a line of code in my life don't tell anybody, but I've worked in tech for 35 years. And in, in big tech companies, there are lawyers, there are accountants. Well, you know, they're mathy people, but there are uh, HR people, marketing people, logistics people. Um, you know, the, the thousands of people work in big companies who are not tech people. So the way I knit all these thoughts together is that if you're a non-tech person, it's, it's a good idea to, to work for a tech company because the, the, the companies of the future are going to be these big companies in yep. IoT, in data, in AI. Um, but try and find a job, a non-tech job in a tech company. And it's I think attached you can... so that you can ride the same wave, but you don't have yeah. to be through the gate. And I wrote another piece a while ago called The Board and the Wave. And my argument was that the wave is much more significant than the board. The board is you, the wave is AI, data, cloud computing, quantum. If you can put your board, whatever it is you do, on that wave, that big wave, you can have a brilliant ride. And conversely, if you're a brilliant person and you put your board on a small wave, it's gonna be you know, a wipeout, it's gonna be awful. Right. So I think the way I kind of rationalize, I know that's a lot, lot to sort of get your head around, but the way I rationalize that is that, that your friends, your family, where, where you live, and this applies to anyone, you know, try and figure out what those big waves are. I mean, in America, one of the big waves of the future is going to be, and I'm not politicizing this in any way, but the whole greening of America, the whole Green New Deal. Uh, that's going to be a huge, that's going to be a generational 50 year wave. Uh, if you can get into companies in that area, um, that's going to be huge. And those jobs are going to be in a lot of different places around the world, a lot of different places around, around America. So I wouldn't overly panic if you're not that maths person, 
but I would just recognize that it's the math-centric companies that are, are the future, right. but they're going to need a lot of, you know, non-math-centric people. So here's an abrupt transition. You might be wondering why Alex and I look completely different. And if you're listening to the podcast, why do these guys sound completely different? And the truth is we had a total 2020 moment in this amazing conversation with Ben Pring. And Zoom locks up. And then it full crashes. The platform crashes. It kicks all of us off. I'm texting Alex. I can't get back to Ben. I'm just wondering what the heck is happening. Well, you said we it's your fault, Nate. 100%. Oh, Ben Frank yeah, said it was my fault? Ben said it was 100% your fault, and I just and I just let you take the blame. <laughs> and just let you be the fall guy. Amateur hour, right yeah, here. Yeah, I was like, I was like, yeah, Nate is just really tough to <laughs> work with You said that sometimes. too, I'm like, I, I yeah. can't even control this guy. He's such a yeah. problem. Yeah, totally. <laughs> anyway, so we, uh, we want to bring this home. This is us transitioning to bring it home. And there were so many pearls of wisdom. Uh, but before we start into the pearls of wisdom, Alex, how amazing was Ben Frank? That guy was tremendous. I was so excited when he agreed to do the show. And the way that he answered all of these questions so thoughtfully and with such domain expertise... And especially the question about what does it mean to be human today? I he mean, that really was honest. Just, just yeah, really, really honest, honest. <laughs> from the, from from the heart, and uh, you know, not necessarily what you what you might expect from somebody as as, as seasoned with a with a seat like the one that he has. And yeah. so, I, I just so appreciated his candor and um, and how heartfelt he was too. Yeah, I love how he does what I think is the full continuum. You know, he understands the patterns of the past. He's deeply involved in the present and he's always ahead writing books about the future to come with a, a thoughtful mind to sort of taking care of us and, and doing better in the future. So thank you, Ben, for being a lighthouse in this fog. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about Spider-Man, like with great power comes great responsibility. Right. You know, <laughs> we had that conversation. We said, are, you know, Ben, are you going to raise your hand when this thing starts to go off the rails? And he's like, that's what my book's about. So, yeah, totally. Yeah. Unbelievable. What a, what, a, what a guy. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. I'm sorry that Nate crashed the Zoom. <laughs> um, it was uh, it was very unfortunate. Yeah. All right, Alex, tell us about this first. Is the city dead? No. So that, that was that was great. The city and the office are not dead, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Ben's prediction was a 25 percent reduction in the uh, office real estate footprint, which which seems to dovetail with the research that you and I have been doing, the conversations yeah. that we've had. Yeah. Look, virtual work, of course, is here to stay. But what does that look like for in-person work? That's going to continue to evolve yeah. as the pandemic goes away. Obviously, we've gotten some amazing news about uh, drugs to, to fight corona uh, in the past week, about vaccines and about drugs that actually reduce uh, the, the, the severity of the virus if you have it. So definitely um, some fabulous news there that will hopefully get us back to more normal soon. But what does that normal look like right. is really, really hard to say. So will people work in pods and go Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? Will there be teams that are fully remote versus teams that are fully in person? That's going to be on a company-by-company 
basis. But, you know, you and I were also talking about this notion of how much this affects uh, the bottom line for companies. Why don't you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, there's two parts to this that Alex and I love, which is one, it's perfectly normal for CEOs, CFOs, COOs to look at the bottom line to create these operational efficiencies and say, hey, we can do a lot more with our company if we don't have this huge overhead of these massive buildings. So yes, that's going to happen. And, 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 and I don't think that's wrong, right? But on the other side, there's this really cool conversation emerging around geographical freedom and unlocking the potential of the entire world in terms of talent, which is like a $78 trillion global GDP opportunity to say, you can now for the first time ever work from anywhere and have a different quality of life that might be game changing for you and your family. So, wow, that happened. Yeah, it's 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 unreal. And, you know, I'm, I'm a product of that. I mean, here I am in Miami, just left New York after 19 years. So I'm enjoying that freedom. So this is cool. As Alex says, this is going to continue to unfold probably for years to come. And um, our, our feedback to you, our invitation to you is to continue to be curious and, and kind of figure it out as the pendulum swings. Yeah. The next pearl of wisdom and might be my favorite is the math gate. And so this is Ben's metaphor and beautiful summary of what is actually a complex conversation, kind of hard to understand and put all the pieces together. The math gate is somewhere in the teen years, kids go through the math gate or they don't. And it's not a judgment, it's a fact. The math gate merely means if you get math and math comes easy to you, that a world of opportunity opens up to you. And it, technology is a, a math-based world, right? So all these new future skills that are coming out are going to have a math component to them. And if that makes sense to you, you have a tremendous opportunity. And this is the wave, right? This the metaphor of this huge wave as you go through the math gate. Now, if you the, the wave being technology, innovation, AI, future of work. Right. Thank you for that. From now, the tech perspective. To from be the specific. tech perspective. If if yeah. you didn't walk through the math gate, it doesn't mean that you missed the wave. All it's saying is that you take your surfboard and you put it on that giant wave, right? So you start to support these emerging technologies and the businesses and all the business processes around these new emerging technologies. You can still get in the game. It's just not gonna be in the same way. So maybe you're not a machine learning engineer, but maybe you're um, part of the business process or the sales process or whatever around that new technology. So uh, again, a beautiful way to kind of understand that it's not over. The game isn't over, you know, you're not, we're not lost. We just have to put our surfboard on this huge wave. Exactly. How about from an educational perspective, Nate? Do you want to say a little bit more? Oh yeah, about skills over degrees. So the World Economic Forum just wrote an article called Why Skills Not Degrees Will Shape the Future. And this is an ongoing conversation that is like a, a drumbeat that just gets louder and louder by the day. The fact is, at traditional academia, higher education is not competitive anymore. And people largely are saying, I'm paying a lot of money, in this case, to go remotely to a school. And when I get out, I may or may not even be competitive. This isn't working. And then corporations on the flip side are saying, we don't have the kind of talent in the market that we need. And I can't wait four years. 
this this wave, this nonlinear wave is happening too fast. So we've got a, a pressure cooker here and something has to change, which is why the World Economic Forum is saying, forget degrees, let's move to skills and let's learn fast. And so I think this is a huge pivot that is being overtly shared around the world. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to get really curious about what are the future skills that I need to be learning and start to trend that direction. Yeah. Unfortunately, we lost the little sidebar with Ben where we talked about Professor Scott Galloway, who's a professor at NYU Stern. He does the show Recode with Kara Swisher, his own podcast, and is a frequent contributor to uh, the media on big tech. And he talked about this idea that tier one brand name universities, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, Yale, etc., are actually a very interesting candidates for partnership with big tech and that there could be this sort of superpower collaboration between the two that brings their brands and online learning to a global stage in an even more impactful way, effectively disintermediating all of the tier two players and really kind of creating a bigger monopoly within the education space in this partnership. And mm -hmm. uh, that's something to look out for and certainly could be a very positive way that technology can can help us all learn more from wherever we are right now the flip side of that is this fourth notion of the monster in the machine right which is sort of loosely what we've called uh, the takeaway from ben's new book which is monster a tough love letter to machines that rule our jobs lives and futures and basically guys this is what you've been hearing about for some time, right? Is that our technology has a lot of unintended consequences. If you haven't seen The Social Dilemma, if you haven't seen The Great Hack, go check it out. Because what we are experiencing, whether it's deliberate or not deliberate, and I don't want to get into right. the conspiracy the theories blame. of... Yeah, I don't want to get into the blame game. <laughs> um, but what I will say is that the way that these devices are, are, are social media and the way that a lot of these apps are programmed it's to keep us engaged and ultimately what the, the side effect is basically it's some sort of human downgrading right. where our people skills, our interpersonal skills, feelings of loneliness, feelings of isolation, separation, even, even, you know, this, the fighting, infighting that we're experiencing. Oh, the, the, the division in our country yeah. is being, uh, and, and, and the way that people are kind of leaning into their beliefs right. more staunchly than, than perhaps in many, many decades is being, pushed by by the way that we interact with social media so right. just to have an awareness of this is incumbent upon all of us especially as we give these devices to you know younger children whose brains may not be fully formed or, or ready to you know handle the power that this technology has yeah and i thought ben did a really good job of that when he said um i was really excited to give my kids their first smartphone and then almost immediately after that, I regretted giving my kids their first smartphone. And I think that's kind of the thrust of this conversation. We're not saying technology is good or bad. Technology is neutral. It's just how we use it. And we think the conversation around kind of a healthy, ethical, thoughtful, intentional way to use technology is the right, is the right note to strike here. My girlfriend got Jagger an education-only tablet that doesn't plug to the, that doesn't allow for browsing, doesn't allow yeah. for downloading of, of, of other various apps, doesn't allow for social media. And I was so appreciative because 
here was this device that allows him to better learn how to interact with tech, but is solely dedicated to teaching a young mind a variety of topics and provide sort of that early childhood development from, yeah. a, from, a, from a screen. Yeah, and the, this is the full spectrum, all the way from being a kid to reinventing your career. This is all happening now, which is why we're having this broad conversation. And it really brings us to the last pearl of wisdom here, which is uh, new growth uh, is, is, well, let me say that again. <laughs> is that fire paves the way for new growth. This is Ben Pring's kind of another one of his beautiful metaphors of, you know, when people get scared about technology or that technology is going to, uh, we're going to lose a lot of jobs. This is going to cause a huge problem in our country and globally. And the reality is that when these new technologies have moved through, it creates a host of new opportunities. And fire is something that has been all over the news this year in California, worst fires ever in Colorado, worst fires ever. I'm in Colorado and I can tell you for sure that the sky was completely gray and ash was falling from the sky in 2020 in a pandemic. And so there is part of me that was like, oh, this is this is the end of days. <laughs> this is what it looks like. Game over. Right. It's scary. Yeah. But at the same time. Um, I've been through this fire cycle in Colorado, and it absolutely does. It's sort of devastating in the moment. Yes, it hurts people. Yes, it burns a lot of structures. And, you know, obviously we don't like any of that. But on the other side, a massive wellspring of growth comes through the forest after. And all those nutrients in the ground create all this new growth. And the same is true of technology. We are seeing a huge sort of rip through right now. And um, certainly with the pandemic coupled with digital transformation and all the ways that that's going to change the way we live and work. But on the other side, we're going to see a host of new opportunities just spring forth from the pandemic that we'll call innovation, right? So yeah. it's very cool. It's incredibly cool. Cycle of life, yin and yang. Cycle of life. Thank you. Thank you, Ben Pring, once again. You were superb. And... Uh, Nate, it was your fault that we lost him. Just, uh, one <laughs> more time on one I more time it. on that. And to our audience, thank you guys so much for tuning in, for listening in. If you like what you heard, please be sure to give us a rating. Five star reviews are of course acceptable. And please also share this with your people at work and at home. We are so grateful for you, for your time and attention, and hope you learned something valuable today. Please remember the biggest periods of change bring the biggest opportunities and we're in this together and we're here to help we'll see you soon see you soon